All right. Well, I, again, you know, as, you, as you're starting to learn that there's things that I leave out or I should have said and, or shouldn't have said and that kind of thing. And, and somebody at the last week when we were talking about the teleological design and we were talking about evolution, and she said, well, well what's causing some of these scientists to now rethink Darwinian evolution? And this is not what we're going to talk about tonight. I just wanted to kind of bring this one piece in here. And I talked about the Cambrian explosion and the fossil record. But which, which that's true, but the thing that's really turning scientists today to sit there and think, okay, there's got to be another story. There's got to be another, <clears throat> excuse me, there's got to be another reason for how life came about. And ultimately, you get into this, and it's this idea called irreducible complexity. And what that is, is, is there's just some things that cannot evolve unless they cannot function unless all of the parts are there, like the eye, right? The eye is irreducibly complex. In other words, you have to have every part of the eye in place, fully functioning for the eye to work. And so the idea of evolution, yeah, then there's the mousetrap too. We'll use that in just a second. But there's the eye, and you have to have it. And so if you have one part that's missing from the eye that hasn't quite fully evolved, the eye won't work, Right? And then he's just held up a mousetrap. A mousetrap is an irreducibly complex idea. All the parts in a mousetrap have to be there for the mousetrap to properly function. And so it's this idea called irreducibly complexity or irreducible complexity. And so we're going to look at this little three-minute videos by Michael Behe. And because now the scientists, they're able to, just to look at cellular structure of how a cell is made up, and we know it is very complex. We can look into the structure of DNA, right? And this is, it's no longer Darwin's black box. Man, this is a whole nother world that operates at the microscopic level. And we see that with DNA. And so we're going to, it's this thing called the flagellum motor is what you're going to hear about. And this is the only piece, and it'll just kind of clean up some things from last week or add to it. Um, but it's just amazing when you see this about how DNA is put together. And so when scientists are seeing this, they're like, okay, there's not enough time for evolution to even bring this about because it's an irreducible, complex thing that you must have. Okay, and so that's what this is. And so we'll start this and then we'll get going with the In Darwin's Black Box in 1996, uh, Behe spotlighted and made famous a number of really interesting discoveries that had been occurring in biochemistry and cell biology over the last two or three decades. And what, what biologists, molecular biologists, cell biologists, microbiologists have been discovering is that at the level of individual cells, there are little tiny examples of nanotechnology, little tiny machines at work the flagellar motor is the one that Behe made most famous. It's a rotary engine that uh, powers a whip-like tail, a protein tail that functions like a propeller. And it moves the bacterium through liquid, enabling the bacterium to essentially track down its food, its food supply. And this little machine includes a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, and a whip-like tail that functions like a propeller. And the machine in some, in some bacterial systems turns at 100,000 RPMs in one direction and can reverse direction on a quarter of a turn 
and turn 100,000 RPM in the other direction. And bacterial flagellum is a true nanomachine, about 40 nanometers in size. It's amazing. I mean, E. coli, salmonella, which are kind of our model systems for the bacterial flagellum, can propel the cell about 20 lengths per second through a very viscous medium like water to these organisms. And you extrapolate that to human um, scale. 20 body lengths per second, six foot person, you know, times 20, 120, 120 feet per second. Mark Spitz or Phelps would be setting uh, records with this type of propulsion. It's hardwired into a, a uh, a, signal a signal transduction circuit that allows the bacterium to sense changes in the sugar gradient in the, uh, in, in the surrounding liquid. This signal transduction system is actually a short-term memory system where the cell is, if it's going in the direction of an attractant, a nutrient that it can use um, to metabolize, it follows that chemical gradient. If it's a repellent, it will sense that and move in, in the opposite direction. So it's more than just this engine. It's an extraordinary piece of nanotechnology. It's high tech in low life. And so uh, just by spotlighting these extraordinary pieces of nanotechnology inside cells, and the flagellar motor wasn't the only one, one by any means, Behe, in a sense, opened up uh, a window for people. He opened up the black box of the, of the inner workings of the cell and said, look, this is much more complex than anything that, than, than anything that the early evolutionary biologists had envisioned. Darwin knew nothing of this type of nanotechnology in cells, and at the very least, we've got to come up with an explanation for this. So it's that kind of idea that's taking scientists, they're seeing just the the complexity of that. And they're like, okay, Darwinian evolution does not answer this. It does not give us the answers that we're after. And so that's what's causing them to turn away from Darwinian evolution. Um, and so I'm not saying that they're turning to deism or theism. They're just saying Darwinian evolution does not answer this type of complexity. And that's what causes them to turn away from Darwinian evolution. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring that together and um, kind of bring some closure on that idea. So up to this point in time, so we've been at this for four or five weeks now. Um, also, we've been doing is giving evidence for that there's a supernatural being that's all-powerful and all-knowing that has created everything that we see. Everything that's in the universe, this being has created it. Right, because we know it can't come up. It's not always existed, right? The universe, because it's running out of energy, and so we know that at some point in time it had a beginning. We know that it cannot cause itself. It cannot bring itself into existence. And so the third option was that it was caused by another. But who is that another? You know, we haven't delved into that idea yet. Tonight, we're going to start this idea as we go into biblical authority about who is this God? who created all things. Is it the God of the Bible? Right? We say yes. That's good. We're going to bring evidence to bear on that that will support that idea. And again, because if we can't bring evidence, then we're no different than the Book of Mormon. We're no different than the Koran. We're no different than anything else unless we've got evidence that supports our faith. Because if there's no evidence, then it is a blind faith. God's not called us to a blind faith.
Okay, so tonight we're going to look at Biblical Authority Part 1. This will be a two-parter, and we'll get going. So, right, question authority. Benjamin Franklin said it's the first responsibility of every citizen to question authority. Right? He's referring to governmental authority. We should question the governmental authority is what Benjamin Franklin said. But then we get those that say, no, we need to question all authority. Right? And that's alive and that's a well today and it has been for quite some time. We need to question all authority. It's a statement made that by those that usually express radical individualism. Radical individualism. To question and reject all authority leads to anarchy, and it makes civil society impossible. You know, once we vanquish the rule of law from our society, anarchy, chaos is what follows. And literally, that's what we've been seeing in the streets for the last several years. It's just anarchy. It goes back, the, uh, the problem goes back much further than that. Please understand, I mean, if we just look at an event that happens today and says that's the problem, no, that's the effect of a problem. And what we have to do is we have to be able to look beyond the event to see what caused that event. And oftentimes we have to go back 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years to get to that idea that leads up to that. Um, and so this question of authority, man, it just runs rampant because ultimately, right, this idea of expressive individualism that's part of our narcissistic culture today, it is, I just need to do whatever makes me happy, and if you infringe upon that, then you've offended me, and you've caused me, you've assaulted me, and you've done all of these things because you're keeping me from being happy. And that's expressive individualism. And that's literally what's led to our culture of narcissism. That's what's led to this culture of narcissism. So, question authority. Now, Jesus is Lord, right? To confess Jesus is Lord is to align or to obey Jesus in all aspects of our life. We often hear people, man, Jesus is my Savior. And that's good. And that's good. But Scripture also talks about, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Have you, have I given him every facet of my life? And you know what? Depending on the day or even the time of the day, I can't answer yes to that all the time. But we need to be living in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because if we only talk about Savior, Jesus is Savior, we're just looking for fire insurance. Man, I want my get-out-of-hell card free, and then I can just go on and, and live my happiness until it's time to go to heaven. But, man, not many people want to say, I want him to be my Lord. I am going to walk to his drumbeat, to his commands, come what may. And that's what the life that he calls us to. Again, as disciples, we're all disciples of Christ. The question is, are we good disciples or bad disciples? We talked about we're all theologians. The question is, are we good theologians or are we bad theologians? Right? If we're followers of Christ, he's called us to this life. Are we walking in obedience to that? Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the process of living the Christian life. Again, when we talk about salvation, there's justification, and that's the point of salvation. That's when you repent of your sins and you place your trust in Jesus. And then we have the idea of sanctification, right? We own a part in that. In justification, the Holy Spirit, Jesus does all the saving. We have no part in it other than to repent of our sins and say yes. Sanctification, we've got a role to play in that. If you want to speed up your sanctification, speed up your obedience. Obedience will always bring sanctification. Disobedience hinders it. And then the last piece of that salvation is glorification. Right? That comes when we leave this earth, we enter the gates of heaven, and we'll be in glorified bodies. So we have these three tenses of salvation, but it starts out that we're to be conformed to the image of the Son, justification, sanctification, and then ultimately it'll be glorification. Okay? So, but what happens so often is behavior modification, right, is not the goal of being conformed. And I put that MTD in there, and that's moralistic, it stands for moralistic therapeutic deism. And man, that is rife in our culture today. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what that says is, is I believe that there's a God who created. I believe that. And he wants me to be happy. Not holy, but happy. Right? He wouldn't make demands on my life that I wouldn't make on my life. Right? And... He will only intervene when I need his help. A genie in the bottle. I want happiness. God wants me to be happy. And if I'm not happy, then that's not God's will for my life. And so whatever brings me happiness, I'm good with that. You know, and so you've got um, singer, Again, you know that I'm not the musical type, but a singer, Adele, I think is her name, right? She's married, and she's got two kids. And she goes to her husband and says, you know, this marriage thing is just not what I thought it was going to be. I want a divorce. And just like that, left. Because the marriage wasn't what she thought it should be. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Our culture is eaten up with it. Jesus is Lord. Conformity equals transformation. Romans 12, 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation is the goal. Matthew 22, 37. Uh, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And with all your mind. And as I said before, I think often within the church today, we've given up the intellectual high ground for something else. So the structure of the Bible, many of you probably know this, right? It's made up of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 40 different authors over 1,500 years. Man, there is no other religious document, forget religious, any ancient document that's put together like this. 
one author over one person's lifetime. You get into the Jewish Talmud, and then you get writings from several hundred years from the scholars, but nothing like this. There's no book like the Bible. Never has been and never will be. So you have the canon of scriptures. It refers to the accepted list of the books in the Bible. One is your homework assignment. When you get to the end, we'll look at that. You'll go back and watch it. And literally, it's going, to, it's, going to be, it's going to talk to you about how we got the Bible, which is a whole nother lesson. We're not going to cover it this semester. Uh, but go to, go to the video. It will explain a lot of that to you in a very easy format. So the Apocrypha, right? They're books written during the intertestamental period, which that's the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. Okay, that's that intertestamental period. For Protestants, it's not considered God's Word. They're good books, they're historical books, but they're not God's Word. Okay? Just real quick, and I'll throw this in here, right? It was during that 400 years, the intertestamental period, it's also called the silent years, right? And it's called the silent years because God was not talking to his people. These books were written in the 400 silent years. Where did they get them from? So that's just one idea. There's other criteria that's in that. Um, we may come back and revisit it if we have time at the end of class. So the Bible's authority. The Bible claims for authority is found. The Bible's claim for authority is found in three areas. One, Jesus asserted his own authority. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Said when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And then Mark 2, 10 and 12. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out inside of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So that you may know that he has authority to forgive sins. Right? And so often that's what we see when a prophet speaks, thus saith the Lord. They either proceed with a miracle or they follow up with a miracle to show this is God's power that you would know that this is God's word. And only Jesus never said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus said, I say to you. I say to you. And then he drops a miracle to show that he has that authority. John 8, 58 said, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And of course, in that context, the Pharisees had asked him, well, who are you? You're not old enough to even know Abraham. And he said, I am before Abraham. And what he was claiming there was he was claiming deity. And we know that because right after that, the Pharisees were going to pick up stones and stone him to death, which was the punishment for blasphemy. And so he's claiming, I am God. I am the I am of Genesis 3.15 and Moses, or Exodus 3.15 and Moses at the burning bush. When Moses asked, who do I say sent me? I am sent you. I am sent you. John 14, 7 through 9, if you had known me, you would have known my father. Also, from now on, you know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, and he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so again, he's talking about his authority that he has. And then John 5, 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus has that authority. And then the next thing is Jesus trusted the Bible's authority. Jesus trusted the Bible's authority. He considered all Scripture to be authoritative. Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, O foolish man and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He's referring to the Old Testament. Obviously, because he's talking about the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. He says, believe in all of the Old Testament. Believe what the prophets have said. But then in John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring remembrance all to all that I said to you. He's talking about the New Testament here. Right? New Testament hadn't even begun to be written yet. It's just being lived. But Jesus has given authority to that through the power of the Holy Spirit that he speaks to the, to the apostles, to the writings. So he gives authority to the Old Testament. He gives authority to the New Testament, which becomes all of Scripture. And then he confers authority on his disciples. Matthew 10.1 Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I should have made that print bigger, I'm sorry. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so, again, he's conferring this authority onto the disciples. And then this is the Great Commission, Matthew 8, 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority. Yet we still live in a day where people are like, no, we're questioning authority and we're definitely questioning Jesus' authority. We will question God's authority if he exists. The only authority that's right today is my own authority to do what I see right in my own eyes. And that gives us the world that we're living in today. So, I don't believe the Bible. There's no evidence for it. Right? So we've been given evidence for God's existence up to this point in time with the cosmological argument, with the teleological argument, with the moral argument. That's evidence that there is a God and that he exists. So what's the evidence that the Bible is true? Right? Ask a question. Is the Bible true? How do you know it's true? Because the Bible says it's true. Which sounds really spiritual, and, and I get it. I've said it myself at times. The problem is, is the Mormons say the same thing about the Book of Mormon. The Muslims say the same thing about the Koran. How do you know? Man, Christianity is a historical faith. 
In other words, we can go back in history and we can find evidence for what the scriptures say. Is it just myth? If it's myth, there'll be no evidence. If there's evidence, then that's reason that we should believe that it is what it says it is, that Jesus is who he said he is. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. But it's an evidential faith because it's a historical faith. So absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And so if there's no evidence, what does that mean? It's either there's, it's not there to support it or we just haven't found the evidence yet. It's just like, you know, Michael, that guy, uh, Stephen Meyer, he's talking about Michael Behe and the flagella motor, right? When Darwin was writing his theory of, of descent on Darwinian evolution, he, they didn't know about cells and they didn't know. They just called it a black box. And we didn't know what was inside the black box. Now we know what's inside the black box, a flagella motor and all of these other motors that put together DNA. Darwin didn't know it, and we wouldn't expect Darwin to know it, right? But we know it today. What will we do with that evidence? So absence of evidence, right? Atheists will say things like, there is no God because there is no evidence. Which the question becomes, what do you consider evidence? Right? We have to get that figured out first. What do you consider to be evidence? Okay, I think I can provide that. Or if you're looking for 100% knowledge, I can't provide 100% knowledge. So what do we do with that? Do you need 100% knowledge for anything to be true? You don't need 100% because we have 100% knowledge on very little that we have in our life. I had an atheist come into the store one time, and, we, and he says, all right, I'm just searching. I'm looking. He's married. He's got two kids. And so I was sharing the gospel. No. He says, I got to have 100% proof. And I said, I don't think you do. And he's like, no, I do. And I says, you look to be pretty successful. How long have you been at your job? He said, five years. I said, do you know everything about your job that there is or no? He said, no. When are you quitting? When are you quitting? Okay. Looks like you're married. Yep. Kids? Yep. Do you know everything about your wife? And I know, I know the answer to this. Do you know everything about your wife? No, I don't. Thanks for telling the truth. When are you leaving your wife? Well, I'm not. You don't need 100% knowledge to have truth. If an atheist claims that, where do they have 100% knowledge in everything? They don't. Or the other idea is that God cannot be tested for, so God cannot exist. If I can't test him, he does not exist. Sounds pretty intellectual. The problem is, is there's many things that we know that exist that we can't test for. Love. You can't put love in a test tube and test for that. How about hate? Racism? We can't test for those things, but we know it exists. 
And so the idea that only science can bring us true knowledge, even that statement can't be tested. That's just a philosophical statement. It's not a scientific statement. And again, we talked earlier about, man, people will make statements and treat them like a fact. Right, Matthew? We were talking about that. And so we have to understand and be able to recognize the difference between a scientific statement and a philosophical statement. A philosophical statement about science is science can prove all things that are true, and if it can't prove it, then it's not true. That's just a philosophical statement. Science can't prove that statement. We good? Questions? All right. So this is an argument from science that there is no God because there's no evidence or we can't test for God. Therefore, God does not exist. That's an argument from silence. And that's where that quote comes from. The absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So an argument from silence can be proven to be wrong simply with the discovery of new information. Right? Kevin can tell me I'm married and I have four kids. You have four, right? All right. I got four kids. I don't believe you. Sorry. I don't believe you. Well, all he has to do is bring his wife Angela in here and his four kids, and it's like, okay, well, he brought new evidence to bear on it, and boom, there it is. So we can silence the argument from silence, but just by bringing the evidence to bear on it, or we have a discovery that brings that about. So this is Professor Philip Davies. This has been a while back. He says, there's no literary criteria for believing David to be more historical than Joshua, Joshua more historical than Abraham, and Abraham more historical than Adam. There is no non-literary way of making this judgment either, since none of these characters has left a trace outside the biblical text. And so what he's saying is, is there's no evidence that these people have ever existed. So I do not believe they exist. Only, what, what's his one reference there? The biblical text. The Bible is the only place where you get this. I don't believe the Bible. And so unless you bring evidence to bear on that, I won't believe it. And so that's what he's saying. You got to love God. You just got to love God. Right? So one year after Davies makes this quote, this discovery was made at Tel Dan. It's an archaeological site, right? And they found this stone, and inscribed on it was the house of David. And that's the stone. And then the little white part down here, that's kind of the early Hebrew writing where it says the house of David. Yeah. Tell, it's actually just, it's a big mound, right, that exists, and it's usually a flat top. And what happens is, is when, they, when they build any civilizations, they'll build a community, they'll build a, you know, a fort up there or whatever. And then what happens is it gets destroyed, and then they just build on top of that. And so they just keep building on top of this, and it elevates this mound, but they become prime spots for archaeological digs. And so we just, I mean, you don't have to just go there. You can find digs elsewhere, but that's what this one is, right? And because that's where the kings would live. That's where the kings would live. And they would build their, their palaces and their homes up there, and they would build them in different areas. And so this is what they found, the house of David. One year after this Davies guy says, no evidence, 
God says, here's some. So not only does it confirm the existence of David, but his kingly dynasty. Because that house of David was a phrase for a king. It was a phrase for a king. And so you just got to love it. God's like, here's one. Will you believe now? I don't know Davies. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm guessing probably not. It's one stone. But anyway, so God provides that, that evidence. And so is there more? That's just one. But there's more. Right? There's a biblical town of Ziglag. May, and again, I, I underscore that, may have been discovered. You've got a kish gave the city to David in 1 Samuel 27, 6. So he gave him Ziglag that day. Therefore, Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. All right? So many of the artifacts that discovered, they show signs of being from the Philistine culture. Ziglag is noted in the book of Joshua and Samuel as Philistine town near the city of Gath. The dating of this, right, it indicates it's from the early 10th century B.C., which is the time associated with King David. So we've got this evidence. There's a site you can go and you can check all that out on that link. Um, so again, we, so there's just more evidence that keeps coming. So critics of the Bible silenced once again. Discoveries proved the Old Testament's accurate. Right, for many years, critics thought the Old Testament continued to argue that Moses invented the stories found in Genesis. The critics contended that the ancient people of the Old Testament were too primitive to record documents with precise details. And their major argument in that is, is man, the actual writing in communication form, in written communication form, had not advanced enough to be able to communicate this kind of detail. That's their claim. Okay? It was too primitive. So in doing so, these critics claimed that there was no verification of the people in the cities mentioned and the oldest biblical accounts ever really existed. So on those grounds of their claim, that's, there's, there's no verification. There's no validity to those statements that these people really existed in the Old Testament or that these places really existed. That's, that's their argument that they're making. And then we find this thing. It's called the Ebla Stone. Okay? We're going to talk about that. Man, it was discovered in northern Syria around the, in the early 1970s. And it confirmed biblical records concerning the patriarchs. They're spot on. The tablet dates to 2400 to 2300 B.C. So 4400 years ago, somebody's etching on this tablet. And there's names and there's towns, there's places that's on this tablet. Right? The critics had argued that Canaan was used wrongly in the early chapters of the Bible. They claimed that Canaan was never used at that specific time in history. And they said that it was inserted in the Old Testament at a later date. And so what happens is, is what you'll often find with critics is they will give a later dating to the writing in the book than what scholars do. And they'll give it a, a later of 100 or 200 years. And they'll say, well, it's 200 years later because Canaan didn't even exist at that time. So that's the claim that they're making. So the only way it got in there was as the book was written 200 years later or 100 years later or whatever it, they need to do to fit that time frame in there, to fit that word in there. Um, okay. The Ebla tablets confirmed the word Canaan does appear 
contrary to the claims of the critics, the tablets prove that the term was used in ancient Syria during the time in which the oldest in which the Old Testament was written. Because of when this tablet was written, it has Canaan in there. So it denounces the critics. Canaan did exist in those early days. And it was used properly within the text that it's written, biblically speaking. The tablets also confirm the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were also thought to be pure fiction. These cities are also identified on the Ebla tablets. Nope, those cities never existed. The Ebla tablets said something different. It says they do exist. And so once again, the critics are arguing from a point of silence. God allows something to be discovered. And we find out the people existed, the places existed, and they existed at the time that the Bible said that they existed. <laughs> On the Ebla tablet? Uh, I don't know. I didn't see that. It could be. It could be. We're going to get to the cursed tablet, which does that. Um, but I'm not sure on the Ebla, though. I'd have to look into that. So archaeology and the Gospels. So that's archaeology in the Old Testament. This is archaeology in the Gospels. Uh, Luke 7, 1 through 5 says, When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, or Capernaum. There's a centurion servant, there a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders to the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal a servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built a synagogue. All right? So this man apparently built a synagogue in Capernaum at this time. So what's the problem? That's the problem. Critics say there was no synagogue there at that time. And if there wasn't, then that would be a problem. That would indeed be a problem. So then we've got a historical inaccuracy in the scriptures. Ted Wright, he's an archaeologist. He finds the remains in the first century Jewish synagogue where Jesus spoke and performed a miracle and had been excavated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so, but they find the synagogue right where the scripture tells us they would find it. And so the critic says it's not. Archaeology says, yes, it is. So you can believe the critic or you can believe the archaeologist and their findings. I'm, I'm going to go with the findings, right? The same was said about the pool of Bethesda that it did not exist. There was no evidence that it existed where the Bible said it did. In the 1950s, they found the Pool of Bethesda. Right? And the excavation revealed that there were the five porticos were there also, just as the Bible says. And again, I've seen so much evidence. I've studied this. And so somebody may bring a problem to me, and I'm like, you know, I don't have an answer, but it doesn't shake my faith. Because I don't know something certainly shouldn't shake my faith. Because if that's the case, I would have no faith because there's much that I don't know. But God keeps showing up. God keeps showing up and he gives us the evidence 
and it's enough evidence that it's reasonable and probable that he exists, his son is Jesus, and he died on the cross for your sins and mine. It's reasonable. It's probable. That's what we have. That's what God gives us. So past critics also claim there was no King Herod as the gospel state. Yet many years later, Herod's existence was confirmed when coins with his name were discovered. You know, you would... Look, I'm not the brightest guy, but I would think if, I, if I'm wrong and I'm wrong and I'm wrong and I'm wrong and I'm wrong, it'd be like... Okay, I don't believe this. I'm just not going to be wrong anymore. I'm just going to stop. But man, a hard heart won't let you do that. A proud heart won't let you do that. An arrogant heart won't let you do that. And they just keep coming up with claim after claim after claim, reason after reason after reason. And God just keeps giving you enough evidence to say, I've answered that one. I've answered that one. And I've answered that one. And it just makes me think, going back when I first got into apologetics, and man, I'm just asking all of these questions, and God's answering them. And he answered so many questions, I quit asking the questions. Because I know in due time, he'll answer it. I don't need to ask anymore. God's shown himself faithful. He's true. I'm going to walk in that light and truth as best as I can. And those are the coins with King Herod. Okay, I saved this one for last. It's called the curse tablet. And we'll see some of this in here. It's actually discovered in 2019. So this is probably one of the most recent discoveries that we have right before the pandemic hit. Uh, they discovered this curse tablet and they really didn't get a chance to look at it until, I mean, literally this is from this year. And so they made these releases. So this information is that new, right? So, but when we read Deuteronomy 27, and the whole chapter, really, but certainly verses 1 through 8, right? God's giving Moses the command that when they go on in, they are to go on this mountain, Mount Ebal, and they're to build an altar there with whitewashed stones and with his commandments written on it, right? And then you go up there and you're to pronounce, cursed are those, and then there's all of these lists, and there's all of these cursed in Deuteronomy 27, and then in Joshua 8, at the end of it, we have this. Right? So Joshua, they've entered in. And so Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the, little, the, the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel, then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing, and the curse, according to all that was written in the book of the law. So they go in, right? And there's Mount Ebal here. And Joshua goes up and he builds an altar. And then you go down and there's this valley. And then over here is Mount Gerizim. There's another altar that's built there. Mount Ebal is called the mountain of curse because that's where the curses are going to be pronounced from. Gerizim would be the mountain of blessing because that's where the blessings were pronounced from. Okay, and so you find that in these passages. And so that sets up the story for the curse tablet. 
early on, it was, um, I think it was the late 1980s, they were up there on Mount Ebal and they were excavating for the altar, Joshua's altar. And they found an altar, but the dating didn't fit. And remember when I said they will just build on top of other things? They excavated further and they found another altar that the time fit this time frame here. And what they do, and again, I'm not an archaeologist and I've never been on a dig, but man, they're just clearing away all of the stuff because they're looking for the altar. And so you've got all of this waste product that they're just setting off to the side. So they excavated this ground. They found Joshua's altar. Okay? Well, years later, another archaeologist, he gets a permit, and he wants to go back, and it's called wet sifting. Well, they'll go back through all of the waste rock. And, man, and they are just sifting that stuff, looking for just small fragments of anything. And what they find are this, is this lead tablet. It's folded in half. That's the picture of it. And it was found on Mount Ebal. They couldn't open it because it was so fragile. But man, because of technology today, they took it up to France and they were able to scan into this document and they could see letters that made up words in this tablet. And the time frame fits the time frame in the scriptures. Carbon dating, they went back, they checked it. Yes, it fits. All of this stuff fits. And so you're like, what did the words say? I don't know if you can see that. It says, cursed, cursed, cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. Now again, I'm not the brightest person in the world, but there's a curse involved here. Right? We can see that. And here's the, so here's the cool thing is, man, Yahweh, the earliest known writing of that name that, that was available until this tablet, 2019, was 200 years later than this time frame with Joshua. So this moves back the name Yahweh 200 years that it was used, that we have it in writing. And I'm, I just get blown away by this stuff. And this is, man, I love God's word. And I fall more in love with his word when I read stuff like this. Because it's like, it don't take much to make me happy. Yeah, Amanda. Uh, you yeah. Well, carbon dating is only good out to so far, out to so many years. Um, you know, and I've heard and I've seen some studies and read some things. I mean, they say it's good out to 50,000 years, and then anything beyond that, you're, you're reading assumptions in there. There's presuppositions into your dating at that point in time. And there's other dating that they use now that's not carbon dating. Like I said, carbon dating can be effective on, on the shorter the period that you're dating, but it can also be very ineffective. Like one test they did on a live rabbit, and they showed it to be like 5,000 years old. And you're like, I think there's a problem in that dating method. But again, it can be right. You just have to give multiple tests to it to find out, did we get a, a good read on that? But the carbon dating on this dates it back to that time frame. 
And so, okay, well, is that right or not? Well, we've got this Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8 that says that's what took place on the Mount Ebal. They had the blessings and they had the curses. And that's what this lead tablet gives us is the curse. Man, they just released this. I think it was March of this year, this information. There's still other writing that's on the outside of this that they're still testing. They're still working on this. They're still, man, it'll be years as they are working on this. But we know cursed, cursed, cursed for those who do not obey the commands of Yahweh. Cursed. It just gives me chills just to talk about it. And you're thinking, man, God, you don't have to show us this. But his mercy and his grace, he reveals things like to us. And for us, it should strengthen our faith. Hopefully for others, it will lead them to the faith. But those who reject the truth that's put before them, cursed, cursed, cursed. Our hearts should grieve. You can't make them believe but man, you can pray, and you can share, and you can walk in light and truth, Warren. Yeah, yeah, and there's places that they can't excavate, you know, because it's in the hands of the Palestinians, or it's in Iraq, or it's in other places, and they just they can't excavate it. They can't get there to excavate, and so there's man, it's I mean it's a, it's an ancient country, I mean it's where civilization began. And who knows what's out there? But what will be revealed is what God allows to be revealed. I do know that. I do know that. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of it's untouched. A lot of it's untouched. A lot of it's been destroyed. Anything else? So, why is the cursed tablet important? One, it was discovered on Mount Ebal, so it confirms... Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8. It confirms that. It also gives us, as I mentioned, the earliest mention of Israel's God in Hebrew, Yahweh. And it proves Moses could be the author of the first five books of the Bible. Because, and what was in there, I didn't put this piece in here, but when you look at the name Yahweh on there, it's not, I mean, it was such an early form of writing. It was when writing was transitioning from hieroglyphics into a Hebrew format. And so there's a hieroglyphic on there, and there's what's called an Aleph, L-E-P-H. I'm looking at you, Chad. <laughs> it sounds good. Chad says, yeah, right? And so that's a Hebrew letter. And so they're forming these things together, and so it's part hieroglyphic, part Hebrew writing. And so it's those beginning stages of what we see with the Hebrew writing. And so it's, like, it's a transitional writing form. Right, last week we were talking about transitional fossils. You should have those. We have those within this writing form. Not that it's a fossil, but it's a, it's a form of writing. Um, and so that's just kind of neat, and you just go through these things. Um, so questions so far? Yeah, man. Yeah, no, they were actually made out of metal. They would mint those things out of metal, whether it be silver or gold. I think that might have been most of them. But, yeah, they were just very, they're very dated, very aged. And, and so, yeah. And there are probably other metals that they would use, depending on the value of them. Here's your homework, right? Who chose the books of the Bible? That's dealing with the canonicity of it. 
because uh, that's not something we're going to be talking about this semester. And has the Bible been corrupted? Right? And that's what um, Muslims would say about the Scriptures, is that the Bible, the, certainly the Old Testament, was God's Word, but it's been corrupted. And so has it been corrupted? And we're not really going to talk about that this semester either. We may get some maxim maybe next, next week, but that'll be it. Any questions, any concerns, any thoughts? All right. That's the class. We're going we're to get out of here early. Oh, wait, I do need to ask. I, need, I really need to ask permission is what, I'm, is what I'm getting ready to do. And that is, man, I would love to do a survey in this class. It's an online survey. And really what it's going to do, it's going to look, it looks at worldview ideas. Okay. And so if you would agree, I will schedule this survey for us to do next week. And what it's going to do is, is when you get to the end of your survey, you're the only one that'll see it, and it will break down what percentage of your answers are biblical, postmodern, Marxist, New Age. <laughs> Kent Math is over there. I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to do that. You'd be the only one to say, what I will get is just an overall view of everybody that took it. And so it'll break it down by age. It'll break it down by male or female. I think they do give you another, depending on how you're feeling for that day. And, um, and so about how each, uh, you, would you guys be open to that? I'll share the results with you the following week. So if you're good with it, I'll save that for the end of class next week. There'll, uh, there'll be a QR code. Okay, if you don't know what it is, set next to somebody young next week. Okay, and then it'll take about 20 minutes to take the survey. I'm going to say that there's no right or wrong answers, but that's not really true. <laughs> that's just not really true. Um, but anyway, so if you're open, I will get that scheduled. And then next week, we'll, we'll do that. I got. I was. I did this with with, the, with our college class, you know. So this is there's 30, 40 students, and, and I and I did it with them. And and so one mother, her daughter wasn't in the class, and she's like, oh, I want my daughter to take it. I want, and I said, Well, here's the link. I said, Wait a minute. Don't be don't be helping her answer those questions. She said she didn't. So you know, I don't know, but. But it breaks down. But I'll tell you this. For the college students that took it, what we ended up with, 46% of them had a biblical worldview 100% of the time. 46% had a biblical worldview. So now, is, is that good or is that bad? <laughs> yeah, compared to the pastor. You know, when they did the survey the same time back in 2017, it was... 16% of the people that took the survey had a biblical worldview 100% of the time. And so our students are like, well, we're 46%. Yeah, that means 54% don't. So anyway, we'll do the survey next week. If you don't want to do it, leave before we take it. <laughs> All right, any questions? All right, and I'll get the survey set up, and we'll do that next week. It'll take about 20 minutes. Thanks, and have a great week.